forward to the day. Thank you, Emory. Um, this is going to be the format. We're going to ask the two presenters to come up. We'll probably take a break after that uh, and then come back for commentators uh, and, and your questions. So let me introduce our first speaker, Charles Mayer, is the Leverett Saltonsall Professor of History at Harvard University, the author of Disillusion, the Crisis of Communism and the End of East Germany, and of the Unmasterable Past, History, Holocaust, and German National Identity. Uh, he is currently writing a history of the rise and decline of territoriality as a resource for state organization in the modern era. Professor Mayer. Thank you, Dean Centeno. Uh, I will, uh, uh, I was invited to this, knew nothing about it, but my good friends here at Princeton said, you're a good guy and this is important and I should come. So uh, I listened and I'm here and I actually worked for this. Uh, the, uh, please forgive a lingering cough, which has gone on far too long. Uh, the title of uh, my contribution is uh, Fractal Histories, Fractal Politics, the Global, the Local, the Imperial in an Age of Deterritorialization. Uh, and I guess I've been mandated about 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so. Uh, allowing for changes, does this, am I supposed to keep this right at my mouth? Like, okay. Oh, well, that's the light. Okay. okay. Well, Everybody you, does that. You, you can hear me, right? Okay. Uh, 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 allowing for changes in technology, we have been here before. Of course, that is the historian's recurrent message. There is nothing new under the sun. The new in this case is the alleged collapse of the local or the regional or even the national as a domain of effective collective policy. We have been confronting what some call the decline of the state, but what I believe is more precisely described as the diminishing political utility of territory as such, that is, of bounded space on the Earth's surface. Our traditional units of political identity, whether towns or regions or countries, no longer seem to offer the same basis for effective policy. Uh, that's the pessimistic reading. Anne Marie's is the uh, more optimistic reading. Uh, we're somewhere between here and there. Uh, the geographical premise of the Bavarian definition of the state, uh, remember it is defined as the association that holds the monopoly of legitimate violence in a given territory. Uh, we used to take territory just as a, as a sort of, uh, uh, just, pass, just go over it very lightly, but this, in fact, premise can no longer be taken for granted. But is this statement true, or is this di diagnosis true? And if so, is the condition new? And might there be a better way of describing the historical transition underway? Allow me, given the, uh, even given the brief time available, to address a few uh, diverse or different arguments. The first one, which concerns whether what we call globalization as such is new or not, is the least interesting to me, although perhaps the one closest to my home discipline of history. Harold James, Jeffrey Williamson, and others have argued that, in fact, we have been here before. I would, main, uh, I would maintain, rather, yes, but only with a difference. The last time our societies lived through an era of globalization, economic especially, in the era before 1914, it accompanied the growing strength and efficacy of the national state. This time, however, it takes place as states lose political capacity to regulate the life chances, the welfare, and the beliefs of their citizens. I believe, in fact, 
uh, that territory is losing its efficacy in a historically new and unprecedented way. Uh, I've called this uh, elsewhere the lack of the growing divergence, lack of congruence uh, between people's decision space and their identity space. They used to have the same borders, they have them, uh, uh, they no longer have them. We have been experiencing a weakening of territoriality as the spatial or geographical infrastructure of governance. This does not mean that territory does not mobilize intense loyalties, especially for peoples who have never really enjoyed its privileges. Still, the recent and continuing battles over turf in the Balkans in the 1990s, in the Middle East today, I would argue, are essentially the flaring embers of a dying fire. However, the issue of what is new or not new must, uh, must of course, arise indirectly. I will suggest that, in fact, history does suggest analogs with earlier developments, but not, so to speak, item for item in the realm of international economics. The conference organizers asked me to address the issue of global and local, and at this general level, there are intriguing analogs with earlier developments. These include the displacement of production, whether once upon a time grain, or more recently today, manufacturers from once independent, from once independent proprietors to remote suppliers of large-scale market intermediaries. Uh, secondly, Migration by those distant peoples, less integrated into remote supply networks to the metropolises, that concentrate to the metropolises which concentrate consumption and services. Uh, and the services are divided in the metropolises between the dignified and lofty, or the low-paid, low-status, and insecure. Third, third analogy, continuing battles on remote frontiers and violence at home, responding to the disequilibria of property, of markets, of religious revivals, revivals on behalf often of harsh gods that take the sacrifice of human life in stride. These are processes of attrition that afflicted the late Roman Republic, the latter Mughal Empire, the Ottoman Middle East, and the realm of American politics today. And I propose that the generic processes we term globalization involve a particular form of geopolitical restructuring, which has been common to various large-scale hierarchical international realms, that is, to empires. Uh, I've been thinking about empire, actually, uh, myself, but for about, uh, I think, uh, 15 or, or, or 20 years. Uh, the, the, the phenomenon that seems so arresting today, the accumulation of military power and technology at the center, the flows of capital, the relocation of production, the migration of peoples, the export of culture and style, characterize imperial processes as well as the genuinely new scale and scope inherent in globalization. And I will conclude here with an effort to specify or to at least to find some ways of depicting the spatial geometry of these processes. Uh, the supposed end of the local is not just an inevitable and anonymous process. I, is there any sort of thing that puts this halfway between where a nearsighted person has struggled reading it and where <laughs> I can have to hold it up right to my eyes? If not, I'll just... Uh, okay, thank, thank you. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, that's easier. Uh, the supposed end of the local is not just an inevitable and anonymous process. It can be traced, in fact, to, set, to distinct collective policy choices 
on the part of many different actors, as well as on, on a major technological development, which facilitates it, i.e. computerization, which has allowed communication uh, to displace traditional manufacturing, offered some of the newly developing countries of South and East Asia to join the technical vanguard of North America and Western Europe, and helped expand such service industries as medical care, air transport, investment, etc. But the rapid advance of globalization, or at least of our sense of globalization, took great strength from the visible crisis and then collapse of communist states and an almost worldwide consensus on market economies as the most likely way to secure prosperity and freedom. The term market democracies, remember it is a new term if you look at uh, Robert Dahl's uh, substantial book or study of the 1970s, markets were opposed to democracies. Uh, once, once we got to the rhetoric of the Clinton administration, they were fused together. The term market democracies precisely summarizes the premise of the post-1980 order, if not actual practice. With one inner exception, the market half of the expression was to be placed beyond democratic control, if at all possible. The capital required for development was to be entrusted to wise elites who understood that its husbanding and growth must provide the self-referential parameters of a working system. This took place on the international level, the level of national or European Union central banking institutions, and on the corporate level simultaneously. The corollary of such a consensus uh, on market democracies, as with free trade options in the 19th century, means, of course, that the fate or prosperity or dignity of traditional communities of work is subordinated to a metric of success at a higher level of aggregation. As, uh, as Michael said, you know, we are all getting richer, but some of us are getting much richer, and some of us may actually, or the world may be getting uh, poorer. And consequently, one had to accept in this higher metric of aggregation the migration of industrial jobs to the industrializing countries and the migration of people, often from the agrarian regions of these same countries, to seek service employment in the lands being divested of industrial work. What the worriers perceive is a decline in traditional employment opportunities combined with an influx of migrants who represent different tongues, customs, perhaps religions, and values. In general, those who share less directly in the new allocations of prosperity perceive a loss of control over their collective economic fate. Their governments and businesses accelerate these trends even when they appear to have brutal effects. Only labor unions, often under pressure, some, dissent, some dissenting intellectuals, students and politicians and populistic leaders appear to resist these painful adjustments. Still, <coughs> Most Western states, despite these counter-pressures, choose collectively to relocate types of employment and types of pe people. The choices are represented as necessary responses to the excessive cost of labor. But we, should, we could choose to bear these costs through a welfare system that was not based, for instance, on payroll taxes. We are not doomed to recapitulate Spinham land. Nonetheless, our societies seem to have the collective imagination that enables us only to face the alternative, either of an archaic effort to freeze the economic and ethnic status quo by trying to re-erect borders, or to let neo-capitalism rip. But I will admit, it is hard to conceive of an alternative, above all since the events of 1989 seem to confirm that any other basic framing of the problem 
or in its solution, doom society to st societies to stagnation. These dilemmas are very familiar. To be sure, their real impact, their duration, their thoroughgoing aspect remain debated. Some political scientists reassure us that despite appearances, the traditional frameworks for local national politics, I include the nation state as a local framework here, really remain vital and politically decisive. They can act, they can reclaim decision-making strength. Others writing in a normative mode assure us that even if nation states have not effectively resisted globalization, they still possess the capacity to resist or correct the new trends. I'm not convinced, but it's not my purpose here to enter this debate. In any case, most political leaders, certainly in the United States, but also in Europe and Latin America in most cases, have endorsed the new trends in many cases. They have been uh, miraculous conversions, to be sure, notably in two successive presidents of Brazil. But the real difference in political tendency is that those who, is between those who accept and endorse the trends of globalization underway and those who resist. I would say the, the world, it's a world or division in developed countries, the party of the globalizers and the party of the territorialists, as I have termed them in an earlier essay. Of course, these parties, or this fault line, cuts across the traditional parties, thus making electoral choice difficult. Increasingly, however, in Europe, the area I study most, the populistic territorialists do campaign as strident anti-immigration parties or anti-Brussels parties at the European Union, a proxy for the same trends, and have achieved notable success in Switzerland, Flanders, Carinthia, France, northern Italy, Hamburg, etc. In Latin America, they have re reappeared as well in the coalition that forced the president of Bolivia to resign recently, the Peronists represented by Pre uh, President Kirchner, and more menacingly, the supporters of President Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. In Latin America, of course, the repertory of populism has deeper and more widespread traditions, uh, I think, even than in Europe. And what I find remarkable, this may be contested by people who know this peculiar place, the United States, better than I do, but what I find remarkable, but also a clue to a proper understanding of the historical process underway, is that the territorialists have achieved so little political success in the United States. There has been little backlash against new immigrants whose industriousness and contributions are generally recognized. The campaign to sanctify English as the national language has lost steam, and we expect to hear Spanish and counter it as our second urban language in many of our largest cities. The Gebhardt candidacy went, candidacy went nowhere in the states where he was expected to have a strong base. American populistic energies, when mobilized, have flowed instead into a diffuse revival of religiosity. We used to talk about civic religion as holding America together, but religion, in effect, has become our civic religion, and this affirmative mode of godliness seems to provide an ad adequate surrogate for protectionism and xenophobia. And while there is public anger with the corporate corruption that is so rife, i.e. with Enron, there is no rejection of corporate power in general. No rhetoric against the banks has distinguished United States politics from Andrew Jackson through Wright-Patman. No really significant support for conspiracy theories, such as distinguish the agitation against the Trilateral Commission in the 1970s and 1980s. No bashing of China, as we did bash Japan in the 80s. The paranoid style of American politics, as Richard Hofstadter called it, which has often emerged in times of unexpected challenges, has not really, at least so far, become a dangerous factor. Uh, perhaps because, in some senses, those who would 
take it up, have sublimated and channeled some of their impulses into homeland security. But that's, uh, in any case, we do not have what we saw in the 50s and uh, right after World War I. What this might indicate is that those analysts who suggest that what we call globalization is merely a mystifying gloss on the underlying project of American neo-capitalism may have a point. Americans accept the new trends, even though for many of our countrymen they bring at least relative welfare losses, and they probably have accompanied a growth of family income inequality. Americans do so the way many British working-class citizens cheered on the British Empire before, during, and after the Boer War and up through World War II. No matter whether adding up family costs and benefits may show they paid more than they got, the calculus of collective projects cannot always be reduced to aggregations of individual material gains and losses, which is, of course is what the spokesman for such imperial projects always suggested. In this view, globalization represents the best path for the United States to assure its position at the top of the capitalist food chain. It would appear as the other or flip side of the extraordinary military power that the country has accumulated. And even if traditional jobs disappear to be replaced by service positions in far larger and more impersonal hierarchies, or the American worker moves from workbench to Walmart or to the vast telemarketing desks, uh, which afflict us all, uh, citizens still share the refulgent national moment. It is not that the forces of globalization shatter the consolations and capacities of the local. It is not that economic progress demands the dilution of what Germans call Heimat, but that in America, at least, globalization has become the mission of the United States in which most citizens can achieve new satisfaction. Now, I'm not certain that this choice is based on a rational calculation of welfare gains and losses. That's beside the point. If Amartya Sen has demonstrated that there can be a communal critique of capitalist rationality from, so to speak, the left, 20th century history amply demonstrated that there can be nationalist and racialist and populist critiques of capitalist rationality as well from the right. Above all, when we live in an era when so much individual or family fulfillment is sought through spectatorship and proxy achievements, uh, televised sports, reality shows, embedded military journalism and the like, this seems uh, a plausible choice. Let me pull together these thoughts. I'm not maintaining that contemporary globalization can be reduced simply to the pendant. Uh, of American capitalism or neo-capitalist hegemony. Our country is in the grip of the ver uh, very forces it may benefit from. Uh, I see us more as, uh, uh, as uh, surfboarders. Even if we have ridden this wave with skill, we do not control it. But the fact that the worldwide reaction of the territorialists against globalization is relatively weak in the United States suggests that citizens perceive great benefits in the trends underway. And I believe that the benefits they sense are not calculated in terms of material welfare alone, but in the general sense that they live in the American moment. Of course, much nervousness and fear accompanies this hegemonic euphoria. Since 9-11, Americans understand that they can be targets right at the center of the places from which their extraordinary power radiates. The point, though, is that Americans are living through 
something like an imperial moment. And it is the nature of an empire, or even of the analog of empire, to suspend the normal opposition of the local and the supranational, if not always the global. Imperial structures do not demand homogeneity of religion nor of territorial administration. They allow for enclaves of tributary autonomy. They continually negotiate with outsiders or barbarians at the frontiers, not just resisting them, but admitting them under controlled circumstances. The frontier may be a wall or a fence, but it is an osmotic one. Empires, of course, can mobilize superior and decisive military force, and they are usually engaged in some demonstrative, if small, battle on one far-flung periphery or another, precisely to demonstrate the space they control. Most important, they work in tandem with diverse local and foreign elites who sign up for the Metropole's imperial project, who defer to the Metropole because they can't understand that they cannot remain local leaders if they resist, but will reap multiple awards if they endorse the project as a public good. And in many cases, it is a public good. We see these cooperative dignitaries in New York, at the Council on Foreign Relations, at Davos, at Ditchley, uh, at the John F. Kennedy School of Politics, and doubtless at the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, some of these are, more, uh, are less beholden to us since the fall of the Berlin Wall, and some are more restive since the Iraq War. But there is little alternative to life in the international order that the U.S. has generated, or sorry, guaranteed for so long. So this is, my argument is that, in fact, what we think of as empire, although the comparisons are often sloppily applied, overused, is in fact, does in fact help us understand many of the structures of these, the, uh, the, many of the paradoxes of, of the decline of the local, apparent decline of the local loss of capacity and the growth of the supranational. And <coughs> what I would like to ask in conclusion, uh, this is, uh, may reflect my own peculiar uh, geometric mentality, but can we find a spatial or geophysical analog for the trends underway? My sense is, <coughs> and I cannot rigorously prove it, that opposition between the global and the local is not a robust contrast within an imperial framework. The emperor Septimus Severus was born in Libya. He governed Congre. He erected a huge temple in Rome. You can still see some of the columns from the back of the, uh, the capital. And he died in York all within the confines of one political unit. Our president was born along the New England coast, I think, governed a large quasi-autonomous and culturally distinctive bilingual province on our southwestern frontier, and has sent our troops to the Tigris-Euphrates in the footsteps of so many other imperial leaders of the last 5,000 years. The economic and cultural transformations we group under globalization go beyond any intentionality in that project, but they nonetheless fit the agenda of many of its agents. If the global or supranational is not simply negating and opposing the local, though it may cause it some discomfort, how should we depict these changes? What metaphor from science or mathematics might we choose to apply? Uh, leaving aside intellect, and I, I ask that question because we always do this in the social sciences. Leaving aside intellectual playfulness, uh, which I don't undervalue, the point in using analogs from other disciplines metaphors is that they help illuminate complex processes in a way that enclosure within a discipline's tr traditional bounded metaphors of explanation tends to overlook. 
For, of course, social science traditionally seeks to construct its notion of the social universe in line with the dominant spatial metaphors of natural science. Throughout its intellectual history, the social sciences have repeatedly borrowed from one physical analog or another. Newtonian physics with its promise of a universal political science from the 18th into the 19th uh, century and on. Darwinian biology, with its images of felicitous extinction and ruthless perfectionism, are the most famous sources of uh, social analogies. I have maintained elsewhere that Maxwellian field concepts of electromagnetic radiation corresponded to concepts of national energy deployed in the late 19th century. Uh, 20th century quantum theory, which is not readily understood in experiential terms, has not lent itself to such master narratives, except perhaps in its very time dependence and historicity. The intimate connection of the temporal transition from probability descriptions to actual outcomes parallels the enhanced claims for narrative explanation in the social sciences. Uh, serious people today, both in physics and in history, uh, debate the status of alternative worlds. Analogy, I believe, has legitimately become a characteristic mode of social cognition. Indeed, I believe, arises the only possible answer to one of two, the two underlying questions which the modern sciences have asked and have asked in the social sciences since Weber. The first question being, what is the cause? And the second being, what is it like? The phenomenon to study. So the issue must be, what analogies are relevant if we think they may be helpful? I would propose that we envisage the spatial processes involved in globalization as in effect scalar and fractal-like developments. That is, what occurs at the macro or the national or even the imperial level of organization is recapitulated at every smaller jurisdictional level as well. Or as anthropologists used to report uh, as they, what they were informed about certain tribes' cosmological views, turtles all the way down. And I would argue globalization all the way down or in. The difficulties we perceive do not arise from the fact that global processes in effect undermine, simply undermine local control of economic life, cultural values, ethnic or linguistic stability. The processes of change recapitulate each other, I, I believe, at the macro and micro scale. Migrations change the cultural mix of neighborhoods along with national societies. Our cities reveal all the cheek-by-jowl contrasts of our nations and regions. Any rider on the subway or the Paris metro or the London tube realizes that we live in cosmopolises like ancient Alexandria. And what we sometimes term the so-called postmodern forms a series of scalar transformations. Globalists look merely at the largest scale of patterns. They can conceive the jaggedness and the discontinuity and disruptions of the changes, but they do not concern themselves with the smaller and smaller recapitulations at the local especially if they're painful uh, developments. They see the coastline from the perspective, so to speak, of a space satellite. Anti-globalists, in contrast, measure the coastline of history by the inch and not the mile. Let me suggest further, if necessarily tentatively, that the multiscale processes underway are fractal as well as scalar. It would be interesting to think that the historian or social scientist could generate Mandelbrot patterns and I certainly do not pretend to understand the formal mathematics. But at the least, the changes that the, that the historian or social scientist observes are not readily understood as continuous functions. They are jagged and abrupt. They are stochastic, but they're also repetitive. They are not simple trends, but they yield patterns despite their discontinuity. 
As we puzzle through the dilemmas of globalization, they, they, they present the same functional outlines over and over at each level. Societies and firms despair of meeting social costs. States and cities chip away at social investment. It would be nice if we lived in an orderly federalism where the idea of subsidiarity, this, this magic mantra of the European Union, really governed and we could allocate different tasks of governance to different levels. In fact, I believe we confront the dilemmas of identity formation, of viable economic enterprises, of cultural integration, of providing life chances over and over again at all levels. The global has not dissolved or transcended the local. It presents, in effect, the same patterns and challenges all the way up, all the way down. Now, as a political activist, which I'm not, Negotiating contemporary history means choosing a level of transformation that one believes one can strategically control or reappropriate. It's easier for some to be ward healers and mayors and easier for others to be uh, officials in, in Brussels or uh, in, in, in the UN. Uh, but as an, as an observer of contemporary history, which I like to think I am, living with globalization, living with empire, requires observation on many levels at once, caught up in a superbly logical, repetitive, but always surprising and always unfolding series of transformations. Thank you. much. Our next speaker is Professor Linda Weiss uh, from the University of Sydney. Uh, there was an error in the program. She is not on the Faculty of Economics, and she wanted to make sure that we understood she was on the Faculty of Government, um, where she teaches globalization and governance, comparative capitalism, and developmental states in East Asia. Her books include Creating Capitalism, States and Economic Development with John Hobson, The Myth of the Powerless State, and states in the global economy bringing domestic institutions back in. Professor Weiss. Thank you very much. Oh, this is, uh, can you see me? <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to start by thanking the organizers of this event for bringing me here to Princeton, all the way from uh, sunny Sydney. It's midsummer over there, to be part of this, uh, what looks like, uh, what promises to be an intellectual feast. And uh, how lucky am I to be sharing the first course with Charles Meyer. Um, my argument actually goes in a rather different direction from the one you just heard. I am bringing the national back in. Um, I argue that globalization is reinforcing and in some respects augmenting the state's role in social and economic development. And this contrasts, of course, with earlier and current versions of the globalization thesis in the early 90s, um, we saw the, uh, the birth of the twinned argument that the world was not only becoming more deeply interconnected, but was, uh, that this interconnectedness spelled the death knell of the nation state as a viable political unit. And this uh, so-called radical globalist view 
actually found very few serious proponents. And by the end of the decade, uh, the story of state decline had given way to a somewhat more modest set of claims uh, about state transformation. And these uh, claims have since become quite influential. Uh, the moderates, uh, they call themselves state transformationists, argue that we should expect the state to remain, not to disappear, but that its role, its powers and its importance are being profoundly altered by globalisation. Uh, developments such as European integration, uh, the global rules governing trade and industry, welfare state restructuring, the privatisation of public enterprise, all these developments seem to signal a profound redefinition of state powers. And what many conclude from these developments is that globalisation not only constrains policy capacities, it also reduces institutional diversity and recasts the state as a supporting player by transferring its authority upwards, downwards and sideways to a much larger cast of increasingly important power actors. And so that is, in, in a nutshell, the influential argument that I refer to as the constraints view of globalisation. And what we see here is uh, globalisation is not so much pushing the state out of the picture as severely restricting its room to manoeuvre and as a consequence rendering uh, territorial political authority much less central to social life in providing economic security and social protection. This. Uh, as I said, is the constrained view of state transformation. It's the story being told about the domestic capacities of the world's most advanced political institutions, those that sit astride the developed world. And so they're the focus of my talk. What needs to be said is that there is, of course, a strong kernel of truth to the constrained view of state transformation. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so many uh, very intelligent people who hold this view. But it suffers from two important limitations. And one is that it, there's an overwhelming concentration on globalization's constraining effects, which blinds us to its enabling consequences. If we examine the constraints in their own right in isolation, they can seem very convincing. But when we set them in a larger context of state behavior, you know, the difference between examining something in its own right, examining it in context, the results look quite different. Using two eyes rather than one, we find, yes, indeed, that some policy constraints are real. They're rehearsed a lot these days. The difficulty in controlling the price of money, exchange rates, interest rates, and so on. But that these constraints are less important when set against the existence of ample room for action in a number of other important policy areas that I'll mention in a moment, like social security, trade and industrial development. And yes, too, we find that uh, there are important challenges for domestic adjustment. They do arise from the pressures of economic integration, for example, monetary integration in the European Union but that these pressures tend to be neutralised or moderated or indeed heightened 
by the domestic institutional context. Uh, national responses to welfare reform, for example, have varied systematically depending on the prevailing political preferences and the organisation of interest representation. And yes, we find as well that pressures for policy and institutional conformity can at times be very strong, but that these are less impressive when we uh, consider the more general finding that states are doing many similar things differently. So the point is that we need to take a step back from the constraints to see what states are actually doing. And I'll come to some examples of that in a moment, uh, as I did in doing the paper. Um, should I say the title of my paper? Maybe you have it before you, I don't know. The state of the state in the world, the developed country, the advanced country state. The second limitation I want to mention of the constrained state view is a preoccupation with the dispersion and transfer of state power to entities, international organisations like the World Trade Organisation, the European Union, which ignores what I call the state's entwinement with other power networks, especially at the transnational level. The idea that we have some sort of power contest or power displacement going on between the transnational and the national, between the global and the national. The idea that the state is either winning or losing out to the transnational. This kind of idea is very deeply entrenched in the local global debate, or the national global debate. And our newspapers supply us with ready anecdotes along these lines. The WTO rules against the European Union in the banana dispute. The European Union, uh, the EU Commission directs France to rein in its budget deficit and so on and so on. But the metaphor of entwinement, I would argue, rather than of winning and losing, seems a more useful image for our times. In this connection, Michael Mann, who's sitting over there in the purple shirt, has made the striking observation that in the long run, transnational and national economic interaction have surged together, not one at the expense of the other. We need to build on that observation. Indeed, in a parallel manner, there's good evidence for the contemporary period that the growth of state power, uh, the state in the post-war era, has gone hand in hand with the growth of global corporations and multilateral institutions. And these contemporary global networks remain intimately entwined with the domestic structures of nation states. So as no national networks have grown, so too have transnational ones. And so I would say this is a story of structural and political entwinement, mutual reinforcement rather than power displacement. Both long run and contemporary trends show globalisation reinforcing and in some important respects augmenting the role of territorially based institutions. And I want to draw these points together with three arguments. Arguments as to why the state will remain a central actor in economic and social development rather than become a residual authority under globalisation and why economic integration is both reinforcing and augmenting the state's role. The first argument builds on this idea that there's more to globalisation 
than a constraining logic. It highlights the enabling rather than simply constraining dynamics of globalisation and that's evidenced in the substantial room to manoeuvre in key policy arenas like social welfare, trade and industry policy. When reduced to the logic of constraint, globalisation has conventionally been associated with welfare retrenchment, tax cuts and the retreat of trade and industry policy. So if states are as tightly constrained as many believe, we would expect to find evidence of that in diminishing taxes, withering welfare and a hands-off approach to trade and industry. But on these counts, the evidence is at odds with the idea of a severely constrained state. First of all, the tax burden has increased, not declined in the period of rising globalisation, roughly since 1965. Direct taxes in the OECD have increased. Middle rather than lower income earners have been squeezed harder. And even corporate tax burdens have risen as distinct from nominal tax rates, the corporate burdens. Secondly, in a related way, the welfare effort uh, measured as a uh, proportion of social, social spending measured as a share of national income. Um, the welfare effort, the total welfare effort has not withered in spite of huge demands on the public purse. Incidentally, demands that stem more from demographic shifts and changes in lifestyles and from globalisation. Given these pressures, it's no wonder that most states have been caught up in some form of welfare reform. Even so, states have approached welfare reform in different ways. And that means that in addition to the pattern of welfare retrenchment, one can find the patterns of welfare maintenance and uh, welfare, welfare expansion. And what is most striking of all is that the more highly globalised the economy, typically the smaller European states, the more welfare restructuring has preserved or expanded the welfare effort, which is already much higher in these globalised settings. By that I mean in the highly economies that are highly integrated through trade. And finally, um, retrenchment has been largely, welfare retrenchment has been largely confined to the English-speaking countries, the, to the club of so-called liberal welfare states in Britain, Ireland, the United States, Canada. Although here too the declines in social spending shouldn't be overstated. They've been modest and they fluctuated in both the 1980s and the 1990s rather than trending downwards. Um, I should say again too if we look at trade and industry policy, here the research shows governments actively promoting the productive powers of their economies under the banner of science and technology policy and trade facilitation using a very broad range of instruments that are not expressly prescribed by the World Trade Organization. We tend to think that because governments have cut back on tariffs and subsidies in industry, not in agriculture of course, that that's the end of the story. But there are many ways that governments continue to promote the productive powers of their economies and their importance cannot always be neatly measured in the sums outlaid. For example, national authorities across the OECD are in uh, financing venture capital industries and high-tech startups. 
They're funding pre-commercial technologies and product development, transferring intellectual property from the public to the private sector. They're engaging in strategic screening of FDI, of foreign direct investment. They're offering concessional finance to assist home country multinationals win foreign procurement contracts. And they're providing financial and infrastructural support for export promotion. To take just one example, in the United States, ramping up the Patent and Trademark Office has been a major part of this new trade activism. With an annual budget of $1 billion or so and a staff of uh, in excess of 3,000 scientists, engineers and legal experts to examine claims and 600 or so judges to rule on patent disputes, the Patent Office is the more visible face of the vast infrastructure uh, uh, aimed at securing intellectual property rights for Americans, resulting in some $36 billion in royalties from patent licenses alone in the late 90s. So on all fronts, the maintenance of the welfare effort, taxation and strategic promotion of trade and industry. On all these fronts, the evidence seems fairly clear that states have, generally speaking, found room to move where it matters in spite of increasing pressures on the public purse and in spite of the new multilateral constraints on state behaviour. The ability to tax and spend and to promote trade and industrial development remains robust. So while um, for an explanation that is more consistent with this kind of evidence, we need to add an extra dimension. Globalisation is not merely constraining in its effect on political authority, it is also enabling in its consequences. The constraining aspect of globalisation is often explained by the economic logic of exit, the ability for capital to sort of move offshore if it doesn't find public policies congenial to its interests. The enabling aspect has more to do with the political logic of voice, the demands for coping solutions uh, from various social sectors to ease adjustment pressures. So one could argue, if one's looking for a theory of enablement, um, that the enabling um, logic of globalisation derives from a need to cope with the increased economic vulnerability that integration brings. The more countries become integrated into the global economy, the more exposed certain social sectors become to the risks and uncertainties of market fluctuations and the more vulnerable they become to economic and social dislocation. And the more vulnerable, the more they perceive their vulnerability, the more likely they are to press governments to find solutions to cope with uncertainty and the more likely the political incentives to respond. Of course, how states respond to the adjustment pressures of economic integration will depend very much on the entrenched value orientations in the political system and the organisational arrangements which aggregate, which organise and which link economic interests to the political arena. And so that leads me to the second part of my argument, which concerns the role of domestic institutions. which mediate the pressures of economic adjustment to global integration. We can see the state reinforcing 
effects of globalisation, in particular in the structuring role of domestic institutions, by which I mean the prevailing normative and organisational structures which shape political preferences, which structure opportunities for public-private collaboration, and which structure, of course, opportunities for interest representation of those who are hurt or harmed by globalisation. Domestic institutions not only shape the ability of key constituencies affected by globalisation, such as business and labour, to make their interests count in the political arena, they also frame the political values and incentives that encourage governments to respond in particular ways. And so in this way, domestic structures act as a kind of filter mediating the impact of transnational pressures. We can see their influence in numerous ways, and I highlight two of these in my paper, one of which concerns the differential patterns of welfare state restructuring alluded to earlier, and the other concerns the differential impact of Europeanisation on national adjustment strategies. On the issue of welfare state restructuring, the overall trend shows the maintenance of the welfare effort for the OECD as a whole, as I already mentioned. But when one disaggregates further to the national level, three distinct patterns emerge, retrenchment, maintenance and expansion, highlighted by specialists of the welfare state, each of which have been linked to systematic differences in domestic structures. For example, the domestic structures of liberal market economies like Britain and the United States, which are characterised by the pluralist representation of organised interests, by majoritarian and exclusive electoral systems, and by user pays rather than universalistic norms, tend to be associated with those structures most likely to promote welfare retrenchment. And by way of contrast, in the more coordinated market economies with universalistic welfare norms and corporatist economic arrangements, national governments have faced much stronger resistance to retrenchment, and domestic structures in these contexts are more likely to encourage policy adjustments that blunt the pressures of openness. Germany and Denmark, for example, are arguably more vulnerable to, the, to adjustment pressures because they are more highly integrated through trade exposure. And yet, both have demonstrated more fiscally accommodating and moderately expansive patterns of reform, respectively, compared with the more fiscally restrained patterns of Britain and the United States. I think the larger point that I want to make is that national commitment to social protection continues to differ according to different domestic structures which suggests that institutional varieties of welfare state have been strengthened by the period of high globalisation. I won't go into uh, the other aspect that I draw on, um, which is uh, it, research on the European, um, European integration to make a similar point about the effects of Europeanisation on distinctive varieties of European capitalism, which in spite of certain modifications have persisted under European integration. The point of my domestic institutions focus is to say that in an age when borders are less significant 
in delimiting networks of interaction. And consequently, when territory appears less decisive as a power resource, to use Charles Meyer's terms, domestic institutions retain an important role in structuring social space. The final argument I want to make is that the most significant change to note about the transformed state is not so much the shift of authority away from the nation state as its entwinement with transnational networks. And this is no more clearly illustrated than in the national foundations of European integration and the political foundations of the WTO's dispute settlement system. Uh, I'll draw on the, uh, well, uh, the WTO's political foundations to illustrate. The argument is often made in the case of the WTO that power and interest politics in international relations are being supplanted by the legalisation of international relations as a result of the role of the appellate body under the dispute settlement understanding. And uh, some recent research has thrown that idea into question. It demonstrates a consistent pattern of interaction between the WTO, the European Union and the United States, which underscores a much more strategic um, aspect to interaction before, during and after dispute resolution. For example, um, complainants, there are three aspects to that pattern before, during and after resolution. Uh, complainants choose whether to litigate trade disputes. They tend to uh, just choose whether to go ahead with uh, certain trade disputes in the first place, tend to avoid pressing their cases when they perceive that defendants would be highly likely to defy an adverse ruling, uh, which would throw the legitimation of the dispute settlement mechanism into question. Secondly, uh, research shows that the appellate body um, demonstrates a frequent bias towards powerful defendants when reviewing panel decisions, tailoring its rulings against losing defendants to secure their compliance and granting a good deal of latitude as to how and when to comply with its rulings. Again, sensitive to the limits of its legitimacy and trying to avoid actions that it, would, that it believes would compromise that legitimacy. And finally, in the, uh, the post-settlement, uh, post-resolution phase, successful complainants will often fail to implement retaliatory measures or do so in a timely manner. Um, for example, the negative rulings over American tax credits to exporters and the European Union banana dispute. The point about this interaction is that it shows a kind of political calculus at work in which each power actor takes account of the likelihood of compliance and the likely impact of its actions on the legitimacy of the WTO and adjusts its actions accordingly. And that's uh, you know, something like a delicate dance going on that evokes the idea of reciprocal consent of national and transnational authorities. I discuss in a parallel way the political foundations of the European Union to illustrate the point that supranational authorities like the EU and the WTO have not, not usurped the authority of the nation state, but are deeply dependent on its political institutions for normative and organizational support. 
and that this attests to the entwinement of national and global networks rather than power displacement from one to the other. So let me conclude. Uh, I've argued that the state's infrastructural powers are being strengthened and that its role is being in many ways augmented by globalisation and that globalisation produces state augmenting effects for three reasons. Firstly, because global integration leads to increased vulnerability for different social sectors and this calls for coping responses and enables national authorities room to manoeuvre in the policy arena and as a result has the effect of valorising territorially centralised political authority. Hence a trend towards uh, greater centralisation of taxation and public spending in the OECD according to the latest research and a strong correlation between high trade integration and highly developed systems of social protection. Secondly, uh, we see those augmenting effects from globalisation because the pressures of adjustment to global integration are mediated by domestic institutions. And at a time when territorial boundaries are diffused, domestic structures offer territorially centralised resources which enable adaptation with national colours. And finally, because transnational networks are entwined with national networks rather than in some sort of fundamental power-shifting contest with them. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm a merciful host, and I believe in breaks. Um, so what I suggest we do, if we can take a break for, please, no more than 10 minutes, and then we will come back and listen to the comments and begin a dialogue with the audience. Thank you very much. I'm just borrowing madly
competition policy, which is pretty Environmental policy itself is quite different. And then you have over the other end, then you have in the middle of sort of regions where you have the thicker policy. And you have a set of policies like the fence where there's almost no regulation. So this is tremendous. And there, I think, it's harder to argue that it's the institutions, right? Because the institutions are the same. So it must be something like the government. The globalization argument is to try to dig deeper and figure out why some issues end up more coordinated. That's interesting, yeah. As opposed to the state of the world, but sort of when you get into integrated research, that becomes the tough part. I do think the social welfare people are pretty much.
commentators uh, will present, then we'll take a few questions, and at that point we'll give a chance to the speakers to respond to both comments and the first set of questions, and if we have time, we'll just keep going. So let me just introduce the three commentators in mass. Um, that way we avoid all the, the, the traffic. And I'm going to identify them essentially by their regional specializations or what they have worked on. Um, in a sense, that's, that's their official function more than as disciplinary representatives. So we begin with Nancy Bermeo from the Department of Politics, who has worked on both Southern Europe and Latin America. We then have Professor Gil Rosman from the Department of Sociology, who has worked on more areas than I can name, but, uh, including Russia, China, Japan, and Korea. And then we have Stephen Kotkin from the Department of History, who is an expert on Russia and who has also done work on several countries bordering uh, Siberia, including Mongolia and Korea. And on that, I'll start with Nancy. Thank you. I'm going to begin by, by thanking uh, Miguel and the staff of, of Pierce for this uh, exciting event and for making the, uh, the state of the world here in Princeton a little better. Um, I also want to thank our, our two guests for these very well-argued and provocative papers. I don't know if we should wait for our other guest here. Is Charlie here for this to begin? You better begin. Then. Okay. Anyway, um, my comandante Miguel has uh, directed me to speak only briefly, and so I'm going to be obedient and uh, hold my remarks to uh, around 10 minutes. But in so doing, I'm going to uh, restrict my comments mostly to the paper that uh, Linda Weiss has offered us. Now, Linda's paper offers us I think, a very sound critique of the idea that globalization has constrained the state to the role of a supporting actor. And I'm using her language here. The idea that individual states are overshadowed by ever new protagonists, as she describes them, is indeed really widespread. And I think that the theatrical imagery that she uses to characterize this position, this view of the world, is especially appropriate because, as you know from watching the media, those who hold this view have engaged in lots of theater themselves and lots of dramatic, literally dramatic mobilizations with people in costumes, etc., and great kind of theatrical creativity. Linda's critique of this view is nuanced in that she openly concedes that globalization does constrain states in certain respects. But she wisely draws our attention to two sets of fact that this supporting actor thesis obscures. The first is that globalization enables states, allowing them to actually increase the scope of what they do. The second is that globalization entwines states in other power networks and by so doing enhances their own power. I think her argument generally fits the facts in the OECD countries. But in keeping with her theatrical imagery, what I'd like to do is take this on the road. 
for just a few minutes and to see how it plays in other parts of the world on other kinds of stages with other sorts of actors. Now, before I set off, I want to emphasize that there's nothing in the text of the paper or in the remarks that she made to you today that constitutes any kind of claim for universality. So what I'm about to do is less an exercise in biting criticism, which should be a release to you, um, but really one of uh, an exercise in comparison and an exercise in learning. And what, what I'd like to learn with you today is whether we see this enabling and entwining process that she's described for us in other parts of the world. Now, as Miguel has said, my, my friends here are going to take care of Russia and Asia, at least, and this leaves Latin America to me. In Latin America, we see only traces of the pattern that this paper describes, only traces of the pattern at best. Linda uses social spending and tax levels to make the case that globalization is compatible with the enabling of the state. But if this is how we measure enabling, states in Latin America have not been enabled during the past 25 or 30 years of globalization. On the contrary, as Evelyn Huber recently illustrated in a long empirical study, governments in this region are still notorious for their inability to carry out essential tasks like tax collection, the kinds of patterns that really do hold in the OECD countries and that Linda's described for us are very hard to find in Latin America in terms of tax collection. Patterns of social spending also suggest that these states are following patterns that are very different from their counterparts in the OECD. In Europe, the paper accurately tells us that trade openness continues to be associated with either the maintenance or the growth of social spending. But a recent study of 25 years of budgeting in 14 Latin American states <coughs> has found conclusively that trade openness consistently decreases aggregate social spending and that openness to capital markets, another measure of globalization, exacerbates these negative effects. So trade and capital market opening has decreased <coughs> social spending in Latin America in the period of dramatic globalization. To be concrete, a 10% increase in trade produces an average decrease of about $31 per capita in social spending in Latin America. Now, these findings by Kaufman and Segura are mirrored in other recent work by Avelino, Brown, and Hunter. So there's a consensus emerging from the data. I think that globalization does enable Latin American states in some ways, and I hope that we'll discuss that as a group in our open discussion. I, for one, think that globalization enables politicians to use what political scientists call blame avoidance. That is, it enables politicians to blame unpopular policies on some third party and to say, I know this is unpopular, but 
the IMF has made me do it, or the European Union, because I think this holds in Europe as well, has made me do it. So I think that it enables politicians to do what they might secretly really want to do by, and avoid blame. I think there is some enabling going on, and I think that there probably is enabling going on in other ways in Latin America as well, and I hope that we can discuss that. But quantitative work on budgeting suggests that the enabling process in Latin America is very different than what we've seen in Europe and the OECD. Let's turn now to the process of entwinement, which is a lovely image that the paper brings to us. The process of entwinement that counteracts the dispersion of state power in Europe and the OECD countries. Professor Weiss argues that supranational systems like the EU and the WTO entwine with member states to shore up the latter. The supranational systems have, she reminds us, been designed, as she puts it, to safeguard national differences and to accommodate and preserve state interests. And I think we see this really very vividly in the EU. I think this picture is, in fact, accurate in the European cases. But I'm not at all sure that the generalizations hold in Latin America or that they hold in the same way. I ask myself, does the IMF seek to safeguard national differences? Maybe it really does and, in fact, helps national interests by its own definition. But does it actually safeguard national differences? I'm not sure of that. And which state's interests are preserved, for instance, when the WTO imposes $2 billion in sanctions, $2 billion in sanctions on Brazil's commuter airline industry? Doesn't the Brazilian state, at least on that occasion, look much more like the states that Charlie Mayer's paper describes, states who are having their autonomy and their capacity uh, to distribute resources and to be engines of growth restricted. The paper points out that supranational institutions were largely the product of strategic behavior by the part of major powers. And this, too, is surely accurate. But I wonder about what the implications of this fact are for Latin America and for the other states we'll be talking about this morning. Latin American states are certainly entwined with supranational organizations. But the nature of the embrace must surely be different when the state involved is not a major power and is so much more dependent on the markets of the fellow members. In this case, I think, we can have entwinement, as Linda's described it, entwinement that can shore up the states in Latin America. But we can also have a kind of entwinement that approaches suffocation. The grip, if the other partner is weak, can actually be deeply constraining and possibly debilitating in certain realms. My queries about entwinement, then, and the contrast that I've drawn really briefly regarding taxing and budgeting, shouldn't be interpreted as an argument 
that the parallels between the European cases and the Latin American cases are non-existent. I think that there are parallels here, and I hope we'll bring them out. The contrast actually supports, I think, the contrast I've drawn, that is. The contrast supports, I think, one of the opening and most important arguments of Linda's paper, which is, and she stated it to you today, that domestic institutions are the filters through which states mediate globalization's pressures. Domestic institutions come across in Linda's paper as very, very important. And so to the extent that domestic institutions are different in Latin America, we must expect that the process of mediation would be very different as well, and that the outcomes would be different. Where the two sets of cases overlap institutionally, we do see some common forms of mediation. For instance, populist parties in Latin America, like their social democratic partners in Europe, are really likely to raise social security budgets. Empirical work has shown this. They're likely to raise social security budgets by an average of 5% when all other factors are held constant. So parties matter in Latin America if they exist and if they're in power. They might behave a lot like parties in Europe, but only under the rare conditions when the party is in power. Democratically elected governments in Latin America are very likely to maintain and even increase spending, not on social spending across the board, but on education and health, despite the pressures of globalization. Empirical work shows this, too, that democracy matters. The effects of globalization on the state differ in these two sets of cases, though, because the institutional scenarios are so very different. Latin American states have not been steadily democratic for the past 60 years or so, while most of Europe's have been. And this matters greatly. The process of mediation is very different. In conclusion, then, my critique of Linda's paper probably begins and ends with its title. In fact, the first line of its title. She's written not about states in the world, but about states in a particular part of the world. And she's shown this in her oral remarks today. States in other regions of the world are affected by globalization in different ways. Whatever we decide about the importance of territoriality today, and the importance of territory, when we discuss Professor Meyer's paper, I think we can all agree that regions are still highly consequential. So that's the thrust of my remarks. Thank you. From the point of view of East Asia or Northeast Asia, uh, I see uh, Charles Meyer's paper as a continuation of the argument that has been popular for roughly 20 years about the uh, power of globalization to undermine the state and territoriality, 
and uh, it's always seemed uh, inconsistent with the region I observe. Uh, it's true that the old prevailing models in this region, the developmental state model championed by Japan and South Korea, and the communist command economy model championed by uh, former Soviet Union, North Korea, and to a lesser degree China, have been discredited. And in the early transition, one could have drawn the uh, expectation that this, these areas were moving away from state-centered uh, development. But I'm more inclined to say that this is what we are seeing is a transformed state function rather than a false dichotomy between globalization and territoriality. We're seeing a state that has strong resilience and uh, ways in which the state is being reasserted uh, uh, as uh, state authority, as uh, Linda Weiss argues. Turning specifically to, um, to this region, I don't see the trust in the United States as the champion of globalization to conclude that globalization is regarded as some kind of neutral, uh, long-term uh, uh, in, in enduring force in its original form. There is a recognition that, uh, apart from North Korea and some ambivalence uh, in, in parts of Russia, that uh, globalization is here to stay. We will have sustained uh, cooperation within the WTO. Uh, those who reject it will be pushed to the wayside. Those who accept it and learn how to use it uh, can survive and maybe thrive, but that isn't seen as inconsistent with the uh, survival of a transformed and, and still very significant state. But the notion of what the U.S. stands for as the leader in this process is really something that is regarded as, as self-centered. The U.S. is inconsistent in its support of globalization. The U.S. Uh, can accept the uh, notion of globalization as long as it's the winner, the dominant force, but once it, uh, if it starts losing out, which is the expectation of many in East Asia will, will be happening more and more, the U.S. is unlikely to be a champion, such a champion of globalization. It will show that its self-interest and, uh, and narrow ways of thinking uh, will, uh, will increasingly prevent uh, that from taking place. Meanwhile, the state is regarded uh, from the tradition of the region as vital in managing uh, this new threatening process as it's been vital in other processes. I think East Asia is a, is a critical region for testing the idea of decline of the state uh, because it is an area where the tradition of a strong state is deeply embedded. The Confucian legacy is alive and well, because it is an area where uh, the developmental models of latecomers to modernization highlighted the significance of the state, because the sense of victimization across the region is very strong, uh, even in Japan, and that sense of having to reassert influence emphasizes the significance of the state as the vehicle for doing that. 
so not only in the 1980s did this region not show some of the signs associated with uh, the advanced capitalist states and moving away from the, the strong state, um, uh, I think that some of the efforts in the 1990s to diminish the state ended up being put in a, a perspective where the state wasn't so drastically diminished after all. Uh, it was widely thought of in the first half of the 90s was decentralization was the way to go forward in each of these countries. Uh, China, of course, it had remarkable success with its uh, decentralized uh, multiple models of uh, economic reform and modernization. Uh, under its slogan, the four modernizations, and then with additional slogans. Uh, uh, Japan was, as the LDP monopoly appeared to be breaking, uh, and the stagnant economy uh, emerging, to arguing on the significance of decentralization, South Korea as well. Uh, Russia, of course, was in the throes of a rap, a strong attack on the state, continents by, by Yeltsin. Um, and so we had this sense that the state was really being undercut. But in a lot of ways, this decentralization proved to undercut globalization as well, because the forces that championed um, open market economies and uh, attacked the established elites were, uh, were not the victors in decentralization, uh, except to some degree in China, where they achieved a, a high level of competition. Uh, that uh, made uh, elites uh, change their behavior. Instead, what we had was decentralization giving power to vested interests from before uh, and uh, leading to increased levels of corruption, uh, increased distrust of globalized forces, and um, quickly reined in by those forces in the center, some of which supported globalization and some of which didn't, that had other objectives in mind. So the, the notion that you really could move from the central power of the state down to some kind of a, a more open environment proved to be uh, quite misleading. Uh, in uh, when you don't take into account what was there to fall back on. What happens when you reduce the state's power? Do you have the forces that are supportive of, a, um, of globalization and the trust in this process? But in the, at the same time as this was happening, and then in the second stage, the second half of the 90s, there was an increasing emphasis on great power balancing and strategic partnerships and building up the state in the context of international relations, at this, with growing nationalism to support that. You also had these areas, unlike a lot of the other areas of the world that are suspicious of globalization, embracing more and more the essence of global and regional economic integration. Their economic response to the process of economic, of, uh, of, of boundary uh, breakdowns the last 10, 15 years far exceeds that of anywhere else in the world, except the United States, too, perhaps. The degree to which they have expanded foreign trade, uh, accepted, uh, especially China, foreign direct investment, 
uh, reshape their economy to take advantage of the reduced barriers in the world is extraordinary. And their results have been uh, to reinforce the notion that they must accept globalization. The ideal of the free trade area is very strong, even though it's very difficult still to achieve it. Elites, then, are using the state to maintain their power, to shift the way they, they think they can operate in, in the world and give them new domestic authority while they're accepting WTO and even the war against terror uh, on the whole. The idea is you, you bandwagon with the major world forces, but you limit their, their impact. Um, so the strategic thinking that emerges in this period is to reinforce the state, um, but also it is increasingly to find new ways of dealing with this inevitable uh, force of globalization. Japan has had some difficulty figuring out what to do in this uh, complicated environment. Uh, they're quite afraid of reform that really weakens the state. Um, the rise of nationalism is calling for overcoming the soft state. The foreign ministry is seen as an example of a weak force not sufficiently defending the state. There's talk of re-entering Asia to use regionalism to balance globalization, but then they don't really know how to re-enter Asia as China is rising and as they, uh, they see the re-entry of Asia challenging their own nationalism. And there's a kind of fallback then to draw closer to the U.S., despite the discomfort involved uh, as they're caught between U.S. dependency and growing sense of Chinese rivalry. So they haven't managed this process very well, either through domestic reforms uh, or through a sense of uh, how they can balance these uh, different challenges. China is much quicker, more, more agile in adjusting to this changing environment. Um, and uh, although they championed uh, Eastern civilization and Asian values for a time and then great power balancing and multipolarity, I think since 1999 there's been a steady stream of adjustments to um, accept the forces of globalization but, uh, but find ways to deal with it. Now this is a difficult thing because China is moving so quickly um, from a, an earlier state. Uh, their state ties with Serbia were exposed in 99, with Pakistan in 2001, with uh, North Korea in 2003. Uh, these, are, uh, these are complications for any state that wants to be really accepted in, uh, as a full member of the global community. They've become more and more interested in regionalism. Uh, China is now the leading champion, I think, of the drawing on the region. They recognize that their own state is too limited in dealing with the challenge of the United States, that U.S. power and the institutions the U.S. has generally commanded are just too, too vast for China on its own at this stage of its development to provide much limitation and realizing that multipolarity was a, an illusion. They have to find other ways of accepting the U.S., working with the U.S., and yet limiting U.S. power. We see this in the negotiations that 
where China has become the vital intermediary in dealing with the North Korean challenge, perhaps the, the number one challenge the world faces right now. We see this in the um, efforts of China to reach out to Japan and increase distrust, despite the, uh, the difficulties they have in getting much of a response. Uh, the, the American leaders are now saying the relations with China are the best they've ever been. China's still trying to draw on Russia to get some balancing. I would say that what we see in this region is rise of China as the central state once again, trying to bring together some form of regionalism with still strong state functions as a balance uh, to globalization uh, in a long-term, uh, un, uh, relatively unobtrusive fashion, not to create a, uh, a, a direct challenge where China would be, would be uh, contained. Uh, why is this happening and how far will it go? I'll, I'll stop with those comments because I think this is one of the biggest questions we face as we consider um, the role of the state in, in, in the next years of globalization. I think it's happening in part because of the continued ability to call on a sense of victimization. The Taiwan issue is very significant in China, and the belief that globalization is being used to call upon human rights and democracy and to ignore uh, national interests that are legitimate. Um, I think there's a sense that Chinese expect that the world will not and the region will not accept China's success, China, the migration of Chinese to other areas. No, no region is going to accept widespread migration of Chinese. Um, the, um, that they will expect continuing efforts to contain it, uh, even in with those who champion globalization. And that means there's a sense, therefore, that they have to need a state to deal with this complicated environment. But also there's a sense that China's domestic social uncertainty, difficulties <laughs> of their own path of development, require a relatively strong state to manage this process. Therefore, I see a kind of regional and specifically a Chinese revival of the Confucian state which in its history had a more of a balanced approach towards uh, vital local communities and the market than did uh, many of the other states, such as the Russian state. I think that uh, there is a potential for regions to provide some balance to the U.S., but that these regions don't necessarily act like the EU in diminishing uh, state authority, and that state the state remains a very significant force uh, in the foreseeable future. Well, thank you, Professor Centeno, for the invitation to address the conference, and I thank the paper givers, Professor Meyer, Professor Weiss, for their papers. Um, I have long thought that um, uh, it would be very uh, useful for social science theory if Europe were destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. The, the costs, the Europeans would bear a very high cost for this. <laughs> I admit that. However, social science would reap tremendous benefits. 
Um, I'll speak briefly about the state and the global, these two big categories. Uh, the number of states in the world has proliferated uh, almost each year, but I believe that we're now triple the number of UN members that we had at its founding, and there's no end in sight to the expansion. So clearly the global era has meant uh, proliferation of the number of states or fragmentation of the world. Uh, integration, yes, Detroit is integrated into the world economy. Uh, Youngstown, Ohio was integrated into the world economy. Uh, Gary, Indiana are integrated into the world economy. Uh, but fragmentation uh, rather than integration is the primary characteristic of the so-called globalization or global age. Uh, localism, nationalism, as it's called, fundamentalism, communalism, uh, they have not persisted, but instead they've flourished, they've proliferated, they've increased. If globalization means anything, it means fragmentation and proliferation of localism, as we call it. Unsettlement, movement, segmentation, diaspora, war, other forms of violence, uh, this is the age uh, of the globe or the global age in which we live in. Deindustrialization, division, islands cut off, wastelands created, places disintegrated, places that had been integrated because of imperial rule into structures larger than themselves are now disintegrated from world processes, etc. I could go on. I think the globalization literature is now getting up to speed on all of this on settlement, movement, segmentation, diaspora, war, violence, what I would call fragmentation rather than integration. Institutions. Well, we have a flourishing of violence, but not of governance. We have a flourishing of state size, but not of state capacity. We have a flourishing of corporate power, but not of corporatism or solidarity. The institutional question, I think, is an open one where it's going, uh, but I'm not sure that we've got a full grasp on the negative consequences as well. Now, the misplaced fears of homogeneity, we're now clear that those are, we're not ha facing a homogeneous world. Yes, people in uh, Uzbek villages know uh, whether and how and under what circumstances Michael Jackson is accused of crimes. They're quite up to date in uh, areas under war in the Caucasus about Michael Jackson's finances, but I'm not sure that represents homogeneity, at least as it was originally feared or uh, uh, proposed. Is this deterritorialization, as Professor Meyer has suggested? Are the flaring embers of a dying fire in the few cases like in the Balkans, or are there many more deaths and many more embers and fires to come? It's hard to know how to speak about deterritorialization in the Caucasus, in Armenia, in Georgia, and Azerbaijan. It's hard to know how to speak about deterritorialization in Uzbekistan, or Kazakhstan, or Russia, or Belarus, or Ukraine, and I could go on. There may be something to the argument in the sense that people there speak about the possibility of deterritorialization. At the same time, uh, many people die uh, over territory, sometimes um, uh, because they're caught as civilians between struggling warlords. Is this enabling states? 
as Professor Weiss suggested, or some type of entwining. About a sixth of the Earth, the former Soviet Union, now the population is quite small, right? It's only 300 million people, the former Soviet territory. It's not the China, it's not India. I resist uh, the temptation to speak about China and India uh, now. Uh, but So the former Soviet area is only 300 million people, but it is a sixth of the uh, landmass of the Earth, and it is not part of major global processes other than uh, transnational crime, uh, human trafficking, and various other phenomena that I will skip over because I think you're familiar with them. Now, certainly the European cases Professor Weiss described, they're managing the titanic of the welfare state. The titanic of the welfare state is sailing on. The iceberg is visible in the water. Uh, and nonetheless, it continues to sail, and it continues to take on more passengers every year. So I think she's absolutely right about that. Uh, however, the picture in the former Soviet area, what I uh, uh, genuinely, uh, uh, generally call the trash canistans, uh, you, you, uh, the trash canistan is a, is a phenomenon of, uh, of bad governance and uh, uh, corrupt states and gigantic state size and uh, microscopic <coughs> state capacity. It's not a cultural uh, phenomenon. It's an institutional phenomenon. Um, if you look at these areas, you have a remarkable... Uh, EU process in reverse. The Soviet empire, there's something called illiberal empire, which doesn't appear on the schedule, but if there were a session called illiberal empire, this would be it. I believe illiberal empire is rather widespread. I'll leave the Japanese case alone. I won't speak about the, the, the Nazi period, but the Soviet case is interesting. They harmonized institutions over 11 time zones. Institutions around the Soviet Union are very, very similar, unfortunately, I have to tell you. Uh, the court systems are similar. The so-called parliaments are similar. The, uh, the, um, uh, the executive branches, they're basically uh, gigantic executive branches. Uh, the parliament and the judiciary have yet to be fully uh, disengaged from the executive branch. But the institutions are remarkably similar. However, we have nonetheless state fragmentation. The Soviet Union broke up despite the harmonization of the institution. So it's a kind of EU process in reverse, and therefore may not correspond to some of our understandings of how globalization works or doesn't work. Now, I could go on and, and speak at great length about these questions, but rather than that, I'll just end with one comment. Um, so the Soviet state cracked up. It cracked itself up for the most part. It cracked up, and in the cracks, in the cracks arose things like non-governmental institutions, arose things like, geez, um, uh, 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 billionaires or people who had amassed uh, private wealth, uh, arose uh, freewheeling media. Uh, this was a period, you might call it, of, um, uh, as it was, of so-called civil society. None of it was uh, grounded in property rights. None of it was grounded in a powerful independent judiciary. And none of it was grounded in parliamentary rule, as would be recognized in the EU case. Now, the state, lo and behold, this gigantic executive branch, uh, which is bigger now, by the way, the Russian state is bigger now than it ever was, even though it has half the people it used to have. Uh, this is true in terms of the number of officials who are on the uh, state payroll. Um, remember, there was the party, the state, it's complicated. But in any case, the state uh, uh, cracked up. In the cracks arose non-governmental institutions, and uh, organizations and um, 
some private wealth or billionaires or oligarchs, as they're sometimes called, and freewheeling media, the state regained its equilibrium and had very little trouble closing the cracks. It expropriated the property. It closed down or took over the media. And it re-registered the NGOs, which have decreased in number or gone underground. This process was visible in Central Asia quite early, when people were still writing about democratization in Central Asia. It then became uh, evident in Belarus, Ukraine, and now Russia. It's a widespread phenomenon. It has to do with the fact that there's no secure, independent, private property class in any of these places. There's no liberal order, there's no demand for a liberal order, and there's no institution leading to liberal order. They have um, uh, democratized illiberalism. Democratized illiberalism. They have electoral democracy and they have an illiberal state. It's not that they lack a liberal state, it's that they have a colossal illiberal state. They inherited the Soviet state en masse by the millions in terms of personnel, in terms of habits, in terms of everything else. This doesn't mean that it's the same. This doesn't mean it can't change. There are instances of change. There are instances of new things happening. It's not equivalent. It's not the same. It's not such path dependency that nothing can ever come of it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's not very surprising. And it's a different form of the state problem, I believe, than in areas which <clears throat> may or may not be part of global processes. Now, the energy and the oil sector could be seen as a potential, um, uh, I don't know if you want to say, but countervailing tendency, but I would argue it's not really, uh, but in any case, I'm out of time. Thank you very much. Now, I'm sure the, com the speakers are ready to uh, respond to the commentators, but you have all been very patient. So before they do, I thought we could take uh, perhaps three questions to which you can respond as well as the, the, the comments. Yes, Wolfgang, and we have a microphone. I'm not sure if we will need it, but... So, Wolfgang? Uh, first of all, uh, congratulations to the organization of uh, this uh, conference, which I hope uh, in its depth and uh, um, diversity and uh, dealing with intriguing subjects uh, is uh, the more fully at home and the new institute of Trias can offer and others. Great director. I would like to try um, uh, to contribute to a clarification which uh, I feel obliged to with my counter-transatlantic uh, 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 background, and that is the uh, uh, difference between uh, supranationalism and internationalism. Uh, there is a very um, concrete uh, distinction uh, when you talk about a supranational organization. You uh, mean an organization where its members um, willing to relinquish different parts of its sovereignty, and where the organization as such has the capability to enforce those who not voluntarily do um, uh, so or who um, um, act against the interest of the um, 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 organization. And the one uh, organization where this is unfortunately only really working at that point uh, is the European Union. 
Um, and I do believe that there is a significant difference between uh, the United Nations uh, in terms of the, um, this uh, and capability to enforce uh, um, um, regulations upon its members as we have uh, lived this. And that leads to this question now. Globalization can be seen as an intensification of the interactions between the various actors uh, in the existing international system. And I would like to invite the panel to perhaps um, uh, push the agenda a bit further and ask the question, to which degree could we see that this globalization we face now may actually fundamentally challenge the existing structure of the international system. We have talked a lot about non-state actors. We have talked in the last couple of years now, quasi-states, failed states. How about uh, we may have to accept that there may be some kind of new um, element uh, being introduced, uh, perhaps uh, what Gilpin and others have in the past uh, raised um, the um, stronger interaction between regions, that regions get in, on, on a level uh, which have really supranational capabilities um, uh, but are neither real states nor real uh, agglomerations of states in the traditional sense. And uh, one other element which uh, uh, Steve Kotkin has already referred to, um, globalization perhaps also um, sees um, now this uh, big um, um, dichotomy between the capability to partake in a globalized process through individual empowerment, where precisely the individual actor in this system also is threatened by security challenges in this process. Yes, right, right behind you, Don, if you can pass the mic. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm a physicist, so I'm not an expert in this field. I'm pleased uh, that Professor Mayer uh, of his attempt to introduce into the discussion some concept from contemporary physics. In general, uh, at the end of your talk. In general, social scientists, I, I believe, uh, use uh, concepts uh, from a model of physics that is obsolete, linear, and non-reductionist. So, and they think this is the scientific way of reasoning, which is, a, again, an obsolete model. Uh, we chase ambulances in all fields. <laughs> yeah, okay, but we have, for example, the recent case of Somebody Iran. Somebody go to Lamour. They simply try to see long army there, we can't, so let us go in and just an example of the <coughs> and ultra simplified system. And the world is a very complicated, complex system. And there are interesting concepts that indeed can be brought from the physics of complex systems into the discussion, like chaos, complexity, emergence, self like this. A general lesson that one can draw is that uh, much caution is needed when you simplify the system to study because again you can leave out uh, aspects that are essential. For example, a more general example than the very simple Iraq example. Seems to me that the discussion on the state of the world cannot neglect, cannot neglect the endemic violence that is underlying the state of the world. And the violence is not only the violence of the terrorists, 
we had yesterday in this very same room the director of UNICEF. And she talked about 30,000 children that every day die of diseases that are largely preventable through nutrition and cheap rights. This is not a fatality. It's the results of an imperial policy which is imposed to exploit them. It's a state that will impose, basically. And uh, it seems to me that uh, is, uh, we cannot do a discussion involving only the actor of globalization, neglecting the victim, which are an enormous number, 10 times what happened at 9-11 in one day. 10 times in one day, no? Again, I want to emphasize that it's not a fatality. It's a state that uh, we impose through corruption of local elites that do our interest rather than that <coughs> people, and through an army whose charter officially is not the defense of the homeland, but is the protection of national interest, that is the maintainment and even the growth of this situation. So uh, it's a comment, but it's also an invitation to consider the non-actor in the complexity tragedy, in the uh, globalization tragedy. Thank you. We have time for... Uh, yeah, I just want to follow up on his comment and a uh, remark that Professor Dino made about the gross uh, domestic product at the beginning of this talk. The other speakers didn't really talk about metrics that you might use to evaluate where we're going with um, globalization, except for an implicit acceptance that generally it's good, except maybe in some regions it's not so good. Um, the problem I think, or one problem I'd like to hear addressed is what kinds of metrics, like the absolute number of people that are living in misery, um, as the previous commenter uh, just alluded to with uh, 30,000 children dying a, uh, uh, a did you, how, what was that statistic? 30,000 a day um, dying. It's those kinds of statistics that I think balance average statistics because gross domestic product can be going up a little bit, but misery could also be going up at a much faster rate. Um, that's the kind of thing that I think needs to be addressed and addressed also in the context of a more global enforcement you know, ability because if countries with power could subvert even their own organizations like the WTO, right, and avoid sanctions and enforce sanctions on weaker countries like Brazil, right, um, it doesn't seem like we're going towards a world that is going to be substantially better or even have a better vision than the 19th century or 18th century. Um, that um, we inherited. Thank you. And let me just give a chance then to the two speakers to respond to the comments and these initial questions. Do you want to go first? Uh, this will be a little uh, diverse. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little uh, uneasy how the discussion has polarized between, I did not intend this, between whether this, or come down to the issue of what this, whether the state is becoming more or less effective. I don't think that's necessarily the globalization issue. 
states will be more or less effective, they can, it's not only a question of what policies they choose to, uh, I mean, how effective their enforcement is, but what they choose, what the agenda they take is in, in the world situation. And the agenda of a globalized world for a state, assuming they continue to exist, will be different from the agenda in a pre-globalized world. So I, I, I don't like just using the, uh, the, the measurements. In this case, I'm also a little uneasy with using the, the uh, Welfare, uh, you know, the allocation of public spending for welfare as as the uh, best uh, uh, metric for this. Although for Europe, it's clearly one that's fought over all the time. But you know, that that metric will answer to the demographic aging of states as well as to their relative power in a world arena. And as a result, I think it's 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 too multi. Uh, it's it's a product of many variables we would have to consider. Uh, the uh, in a sense, yes, states can be augmented by globalization, but they may not be the same. They may not have the. Uh, they may not be the same state. Uh, they may have uh, uh, the same flags. They may uh, claim functions, and yet they may be doing something uh, different. And I'm not particularly interested in states. My my criteria was whether one can work within, essentially, put up boundaries for policy making. Uh, I think that's somewhat different, but. Uh, will have to judge on some of the regional uh, situations on Mr. Rosman's, uh, Mr. Rosman's critique. Sure, East Asia is the land of the Confucian state. And, you know, the Chinese state has been immensely, uh, is an immense presence for a long, long time. And the Japanese emperor got his regalia, I think, in 660 BC from the sun goddess. And uh, that has been, has been functioning uh, since. Yet, and obviously they're skeptical about US globalization. Nonetheless, I would, I would, I would ask certain questions. These states are immensely, uh, you know, our presence in their security dilemma is fundamental. And it will be, and it will be painful for us to make choices on the Taiwan issue. It will have to be. It's clearly there. The reason we, uh, in a sense, do let North Korea get away with what we were determined not to let Saddam Hussein get away with, I mean, or, or claim to, is that, uh, you know, a lot of South Koreans live very close to, uh, their, uh, to, to North Korea and their American troops, et cetera. We all, we, we all know this. Is the Jap, let's, uh, if we look at these states, I'm not clear they're functioning so effectively. Uh, if we look at the indecisiveness about South Korean policies uh, in the last two or three administrations, from sunshine to non-sunshine, uh, dealing with the North, it's not clear to me this is uh, such an effective state. It's not clear to me that the Japanese state, it can do, which cannot, in a sense, restore the growth rates prevailing in Western Europe or uh, North America for the last 15 years and doesn't know how to solve the inner uh, manipulations of its banking system and credit inflation, uh, it doesn't want to face up to that, is really so powerful or effective a state. It is a state which paralyzes, trips over itself in many different aspects. This may be a question. It's clearly a bounded state. Japan, like England, is an island, an island and as a result, you know, we, we, we have a physical uh, presence for it. Uh, but I am not certain in my measurements of what states do or do not do that I would call a Japanese state really so successful. If we look at its presence in the international system, as 
as we uninformed uh, Westerners do, I'm more and more impressed when I see Chinese at meetings vis-a-vis Japanese at meetings at the flexibility, the the subtlety of, 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 of Chinese interlocutors and sometimes the traditional bound mode of the Japanese. It's a very personal, you know, obviously in, in narrow perspective. But still, uh, I, I don't know whether the states are there, and I'm not trying to suggest they're declining, but what, what functions they're doing are not clear. Now, uh, uh, also, it's not, as I said, I, it's not just welfare budgets. It's the flow of peoples. It's the use of English. It's security dilemmas, which I think, in my view, which is that view of what an imperial presence does as well as what globalization is, which is important. Let me address, I mean, Steve Kotkin is always, uh, uh, you know, wonder, wonderful to listen to as, uh, as, as and, and very brilliant. But, yes, Trash Canistan, it was a great, great title. Uh, I would not deduce diasporas as a force for fragmentation. They are a very, they are a key feature of the postmodern world. Everyone wants to be a member of a diaspora now. It's really chic. And uh, so we find that, you know, we, we, we invent them. And, and in fact, the theories of them are written probably by, you know, what is now the most uh, verbally adept diaspora in the world, that coming from Calcutta and Bombay uh, to Chicago. But uh, the... Uh, that's not a source of fragmentation. This is a source of cross-border integration in, in, in many ways. Trashkanistan, well, it's not so different from Africanistan. Uh, if you look at Sierra Leone and uh, Liberia, it's uh, maybe these, this is the detritus of empire. You've, you know, you've said it's the detritus of the Soviet empire. And in some ways, since the Soviet uh, Union ran Russia as a type of na- national subunit, it could be what's happening uh, could be the detritus of a uh, of a uh, of of the Soviet empire as well. My sense is, you know, that we are living through a period in which we are fundamentally have been decolonizing the world of its own empires and looking toward a couple of new ones, one of which I think is the United States and another will be in some differently, obviously, but the, the Chinese presence will only grow stronger. And that, that uh, this, for all the apologists of empire, empires are great at creating order when they're functioning. They're like that Titanic before it meets the iceberg. Uh, the music on deck is wonderful. Uh, the, uh, the question is, though, they're really... A lot of them hit icebergs. They have been hitting icebergs throughout the 20th century. They're likely to, there are good reasons for hitting icebergs. Uh, and that they leave behind them. They leave behind them the ethnic conflicts because they've attempted arbitrary in, uh, groupings of uh, ethnicities within their rule. Every place that Britain ruled virtually has had to be partitioned. Uh, Cyprus, Ireland, uh, Palestine, uh, the Indian subcontinent. Uh, uh, the Biafrans tried, they couldn't make it, they couldn't make the partition work. Uh, so that in a certain sense, this is what empires leave behind. They leave a, a tremendous mortgage, hypothecation of, uh, of, of woe in some cases. And should that make us nostalgic for empires or should it make us cr- critical of the attempt ever to have formed them? That's, that's that's a, 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 a you know it depends whether we're uh, you know the, the Brits sort of love this and some of our people love it and uh, I think we have to say though that the 
empire will always entail the end of empire, and we should weigh it, the cost that in a long-term perspective. Uh, okay, these are my, my points. And I would maintain in some senses that even if I, what I were describing could be uh, critiqued for every section of the world, it was still going on as a general process. Uh, in that sense, I'm not a... Uh, uh, Back, as you said, I believe in those dialectics we grew up with in graduate uh, school or, 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 or shortly afterward, that the whole and its parts are always going to be in some sort of uh, tension-ridden uh, uh, relationship with social sciences as well. And that's what I was trying to get at by looking at, uh, you know, contemporary models. And I, I have tried to keep up with those because I do think we will use these models one way or another. We just absorb them. It's the, if you, human descriptions are remarkably, uh, in terms of spatial and uh, descriptions are remarkable, there's a remarkable coherence in the view from the perspective of intellectual history. Let's think about what we want to pick and choose. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Professor Weiss? Right, well, can I be brief because jet lag is kicking in here. <laughs> um, Yes, this issue of, of the effectiveness of the state did crop up, and it wasn't something that I really wanted to place any emphasis on. Can you hear me? Um, is that working? I, I think that um, that the, uh, what can what I one of the implications of what I was saying was that the problems of ordinary living under globalisation are certainly generating pressures for more complex state involvement. Uh, rather than for less involvement on the part of the state, and by the same token, for a better quality, um, a better quality state, not a minimal one. Um, whether you want to call that a more effective state or not, indeed, what takes it takes to be effective certainly has <coughs> changed over time because the business of governance um, tends to alter as the external environment changes, and I think that. One of the things I didn't uh, go into is that this has very clear implications for our, how we understand globalization's very differentiated impact on the developing as opposed to the developed world. Because if a, if a state, such a state, is not in place, as much uh, is, is indeed the case in much of the develop, developing world today, then um, external integration, or what we call global integration, will create much more harm than good, as indeed is the case in much of Africa, where we uh, see the, the World Bank's uh, siren song has left a lot of wreckage. Um, so I guess the point there being that internal integration must come before external integration if we're talking about <coughs> developing countries, because no country can climb the ladder of development uh, without a development strategy in place, and that presupposes a stable set of political institutions. Um, the, uh, I think even a global enthusiast like Thomas Friedman would concede that point. Um, I think he uses the metaphor of the giant power plug, um, that, that the state is, is rather like this, uh, this sort of power plug that, um, you know, connecting up to the global power supply, um, when you a state that is, is integrating is, is effectively connecting up like that and uh, it doesn't take too much to appreciate that if the plug is malformed 
uh, or if it's, it's uh, not in good shape, then there'll be massive short-circuiting in the domestic arena. Um, so I guess that, that's really uh, enough on that issue. Um, just to Nancy's point, um, you... Uh, talking about the Latin American context and how you made the point that globalisation wasn't very enabling in Latin America, uh, that social spending was constrained. Um, and I think you were right to put emphasis on domestic institutions. You emphasise the um, democratic institutions or the, the weakness or the lack thereof. But um, my, one of my colleagues, uh, Ramesh, has um, noted in a recent study that in East Asia, where you have fairly recent democracies, you've seen quite a significant uh, growth of social welfare. And I wonder just whether the question might be just how, how integrated are the Latin American economies? How, uh, what, what might be the level of trade integration there, for one thing? Um, and I don't really know very much about the region, but if you applied the argument about domestic institutions, you might look at something like the organisational fragmentation within the state itself, the, the sort of difficulty that state elites have in, in controlling um, uh, the dominant classes, and you might look also at the state-society relationship, societal fragmentation, the absence of as you mentioned, well-organised political parties who can um, aggregate the interests of the poor. So, uh, yes, I think a domestic institution's um, argument could apply in that setting. Thank you. I'm just going to take my prerogative as the organiser uh, just to bring up an issue, and, and it's getting very close to lunch, so we won't be able to deal with it completely, but that I was surprised that neither uh, presenter or the commentators have made which is the notion of monopoly of the means of violence as the very definition of the state. And one of the things that I wonder about that no one has really addressed is, is that a viable model? Um, can we assume that over the next 50 years, let's say, and social scientists are so good at predicting, uh, will we see states or things we recognize as states, perhaps by their territoriality or by their sense of constitutionalness, maintaining the monopoly of the means of violence? Or will this become more, you can imagine several models, you can become uh, a unionization of violence, that might be the most benign, uh, a mafianization of violence, sort of international thugs, or an Al-Qaeda type of violence where really basically anyone with a beef and a little bit of technology and organization can make their point as violently as any state in, in, in history. So I was just wondering, I mean... Uh, Miguel, the citation that we all draw on from Weber is not just the monopoly of violence, it's the monopoly of legitimate violence. Right, and he has right. clearly a sense of what constitutes legitimacy. And that's the issue. Is I mean, yes, there's, there's, I mean, look at, you know, I was listening to Trash Canistan, I was thinking of California in the 1860s. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the vigilantes, uh, vastly wealthy guys against uh, would-be state powers, etc. The, uh, what, there will be plenty of violence out there. We've seen that now a lot. I mean, whether it's Al-Qaeda or private mercenaries in, in, in Africa, and it's not getting better. The question is, will, you know, they, they often 
legitimacy is important for each of them. Al-Qaeda clearly has a notion of its own legitimacy, but where do we lodge legitimacy? That's the issue, I think, which uh, you know your question should be led to. Will we have to see a plurality of legitimate violences, or will we move to restrict it to the UN, or will we keep it where it is? And I have no answer to that, but make sure we keep that adjective in there. Uh, I mean, I'll just make this a, a two-person dialogue. Yes, the legitimacy is absolutely important, I agree with you. But I think there's also a mechanistic, uh, sheer quantity amount. Uh, I might have my history wrong, but at least for the last, last 150 years, the capacity of states to impose some kind of civil order and to reserve for themselves, legitimate or not, the means to destroy and kill lots of people. That, that was one of the characteristics of, of modernity. Are we moving to a space where that is no longer the case? Where it's not just the cops that can enforce a contract, it's not just the state that can enforce an alliance, but other international actors come up with that with that capacity, legitimate or not. I think you're, I think it's true. The legitimacy question is important, but the sheer availability of this violence is is I think is also important. Yeah, I think yeah. The way I think about it is the privatization of violence capability that what non-state actors can now and increasingly uh, acquire the capacity to do what only a few states could mobilize state capacity to generate. Uh, the, so we have now terrorists and even a, smaller and smaller groups of people as we go forward will be able to mobilize more and more force. So doesn't that take us back to the state, to, a, to borders, uh, walls and gates, uh, states that have to uh, reimpose order and gated communities are not states. Sorry. Gated communities are not necessarily states. Well, we I had an expression for this. Uh, we uh, historians don't find it fashionable anymore, but we used to call it the dark ages. <laughs> but it's, it's a vision of states as gated communities, in fact, that require biometric border passes. Uh, another terrorist attack in the West could re legitimate border controls in a way that we haven't seen in hundreds of years. There's another philosophy uh, that the state voluntarily offers uh, legitimization to violence and to uh, uh, enforcement mechanisms undertaken by corporations in the name of the state. And uh, an element which we can follow now when we discuss globalization uh, corporations, although at their um, uh, uh, main uh, place where the headquarters and where the le uh, legal responsibility rests, will obey to certain rules of their host state. But the moment they operate in search of their own corporate interests, whether oil exploration, if you think about Afghanistan and Central Asia, they may employ the same um, um, enforcement mechanisms as states typically do, and even worse, the local and regional traditional actors in the system, namely states, will expect those corporations under certain circumstances to contribute to regional security uh, and stability, and that may actually add a whole new other uh, dimension to the discussion. Well, it is getting close to lunch. Uh, 
So we can summarize the globalization somewhere between Michael Jackson and the Dark Ages. Uh, and uh, along those lines... Maybe we, it's the same thing. Maybe it's the same thing. Um, along those same lines, uh, we will convene at 2 o'clock um, this afternoon. Thank you very, very much. Uh, those uh, participants and invited guests are... Uh, we do have lunch set up in the Schultz cafeteria, and you're welcome to go there. Thank you very much. Thank you.